they just had to follow God's law and they were saved. No, no, no. That is not the case. Going to the media does not do anything. Why add fuel to the fire? People don't want to grow up and be a Bill Walton. Having a two-way big man is so important in winning big games. All right. Welcome to episode two of the Jesus Loves Sports podcast. I'm your host, Luke Heaton. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your blessings that you shower upon us every single day. And thank you for your unconditional love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, welcome to this podcast. I plan to uh, talk about salvation and then do a little Super Bowl preview. And then some college basketball. We'll hit on the Big 12. And then we'll end with some NBA talk. All right. So regarding salvation, salvation's a heavy topic. There's a lot of different opinions on how one achieves salvation, what it looks like. So I just want to clear some things up. First of all, salvation is faith alone. You are saved by faith. Now let me first of all let me ask you a question. How are you saved? Like what what saves you? Think about that for a few seconds. What saves you? How are you saved? Is it by faith? Or is it by good works? As a lot of people think. Actually neither are the correct answer because the answer is God saves you. God chose to send his son to die for you to save you. Yes, you're saved through faith, but you're not saved. I can't you can't say, "Oh, my faith saves me." No, no, God saved you through faith. So let's just get that clear because when you start taking things into your own things and say into your own hands say, "Mine, mine, mine. This is mine. My good works, my faith." When it becomes yours, it's no longer God's. Ephesians 2.8 sums this all up very well when Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So, I just want to point that out. I heard that. Actually, it brings me to talking about the sermon I just heard. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second from uh, the pastor at my church. But anyway... So, faith alone saves you. No, no, no. That doesn't discredit good works and good deeds. God calls us to that. Like in when James, the book of James, James calls us to have works that make our faith genuine. Works that allow us to receive God's blessing. That's what works and following God's law are for. God created us in the first place because because God is love. God wanted something to love. He created us to love. God desperately wants to shower us with blessings and pleasure. And He wants to protect us. And we start receiving that by obeying His law and obeying Him. We don't obey Him to achieve salvation. That's what faith is for. We obey Him to receive fulfillment and joy that He has to offer us. God wants us to have a fulfilling great life. Now, yes, there's going to be painful things. There's going to be suffering. And God tells you that in the Bible. However, that doesn't take away that God wants us to live 
fruitful and joyful lives. God calls us to obey because he knows what's best for us. So, yes, good deeds are so important. God calls us to that, but they don't save you. Faith alone saves you. Now, so for all of you, like plenty of people still believe uh, the, that good works save you. Even plenty of Christians believe, oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this, then I'm going to get into heaven. It's not true. Plenty of places in the Bible, that's not true. Paul writes in Romans, faith alone. Ephesians 2, faith alone. So it's clear, it's just sometimes you don't want to believe it because it's so different from other religions. Like other religions, like Islam, it's about doing things to be good enough for God. But that's kind of, it doesn't make sense because if God's perfect, we can never be good enough. And it's weird for Christianity, sometimes we can't comprehend that God offers us a gift. We just have to believe. And then we'll be with Him for eternity. But that's, it's so, it's kind of hard to comprehend to some people. And it's, but it's really, it's amazing to think about. And it just, it fills you with joy once you're able to understand that God loves you that much to send His Son to die for you, that you could, through faith, you'll live in eternity with Him. Anyway, let's look at the other side of the spectrum. People, yes, so when faith, faith saves you, oh, well, my faith saves me, so I'm not going to I'm not gonna do good works. I'm already saved. I'm just going to buy into the sin, sinful living and live for all these pleasures. First of all, let's, let's talk about pleasure for a second. God created pleasure. He, want, he loves when his creation gets to experience pleasure. Now, where Satan comes in, Satan wants the abuse of that pleasure. So God does not call us to, okay, I want you to have faith and then do whatever you want. You can, that's abuse of the pleasure. God has very certain, he's a certain way of how you want to experience pleasure. And when you experience it that way, it's perfect. It's satisfying, fulfilling. But then when you abuse it, that's when it, the sin starts to lead to death. And James 1.15, sin leads to death. And so it brings me back to talking about the sermon my pastor in my church recently talked about. He kind of went off on a little tangent about faith. Um, and he said to those who think, who are living, say, I have faith, but I'm just going to buy into the sinful living. Yes, you have salvation. You can't lose that. But he said something awesome. You will still experience all the death this world has to offer. You are saved, but your life will be death. So for example, sin leads to death. Infidelity in a marriage. Death to the marriage. That's just one example of how abuse of the pleasure God wants us to experience, you abuse it, leads to death. All horrible things in the world are a result of abusing pleasure and taking advantage of faith. And I want to talk about kind of the abuse of faith uh, in, a, in a second. But so, so like in the Bible... Like, it's so clear that faith alone saves you. But then people kind of start reading in, and they're, well, well, there's a controversy. The James and Paul contradict each other. I'll talk about that in a second. And then, oh, well, how, will, how were people in the Old Testament saved then? They just had to follow God's law, and they were saved. No, no, no. That is not the case. Old Testament salvation, New Testament salvation. New Testament salvation. They are the exact same thing. Old Testament they believed 
God will fulfill his promises. New Testament, you believe God fulfilled his promise. Both are you believe, you have faith. Old, people in the Old Testament, they followed God's law to receive God's blessing. And that's why there's so many horror stories in the Old Testament about God's people not obeying his law, which led to death, which led to exile. It didn't lead to them losing their salvation. It led to them missing out on all the pleasures God wanted to offer them. But they too many times bought in to the sin that Satan was offering them, and they bought into it, and they didn't get to experience the fullness of life God desperately wants to offer us out of love. So Old Testament, New Testament, you're saved the same way. And then the contradiction, the apparent contradiction between uh, Romans and James. First of all, let me talk about contradictions for a second. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, us Christians, there's, according to that verse, there is no contradictions in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is true. It's perfect. God used humans to write it. So, the argument that there's a contradiction is false. There's no contradiction. Second, there, there, let's, uh, let, me, let me just read you what people view as a contradiction. So in Romans 4, Paul's writing about Abraham justified by his faith. He says, when, 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 What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credit, credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. That's how he was saved. Abraham believed. So Paul's saying faith. Faith, faith, faith. Believe, believe. You are saved. That's also, I guess I could have read that for the how people in the Old Testament were saved. And Abraham was before even the law, before God sent his law, so... There was no law for him to use to be saved anyway. All right, and then let me read James. James 2 uh, says, James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother and sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Alright, yes. I know that sounds like Paul saying faith, and James is saying, no, 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 no. Faith and works. Faith and works. You have to have works to save you. That is not the case. Let's look into this. So, I recently read a really good uh, analogy for this. A lot of people are viewing, imagine, imagine this, people are viewing Paul and James at each other with swords. They're fighting each other. But really, their backs are to each other, to each other, and they're fighting different enemies. But they have the same goal. They're fighting different enemies, not each other. Paul is writing to people who are using works to achieve salvation. He's reminding them, no, 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 it's by faith. Believe and you'll achieve salvation. 
And then James, James is saying, guys, stop abusing faith. Let make, achieve fullness of life by doing good works. Works through love. Faith acted out through love. Your faith saves you, but don't just have, like, make your faith genuine. Make it real. Do works and experience fullness of life. James is not saying you have to have works to achieve salvation. He's reminding them to not abuse faith. Don't just say, oh, I have faith, and I'm just going to buy into sinful living. So, Paul and James don't contradict each other. They're fighting two different enemies. They're going after two different crowds of people that have, or have two different mindsets. So that's what I just wanted to remind you guys or tell you guys if you've never heard it for the first time. There is no contradiction in, Paul, in what Paul says and what James says. They're writing to do two different types of crowds. So... That's what I have for salvation. It's just really important to know you are saved by faith, but God calls you to good works and good deeds and to obey Him so you can experience fullness of life. All right. Now, on to a little sports talk. First, we could do a little Super Bowl preview. I am very excited for the Super Bowl. Um, to... Um, great quarterbacks, Brady, you can easily make a case. He's the best quarterback of all time. Falcons put up a lot of points. Patriots are good all around. It's going to be a great game. If it ends up being a shootout, I'll be happy. I'm just excited to see the game. So I recently, I was on USA Today, put this great chart of stats up. Some really important statistics to know for the game that I want to share with you guys. So I'll go over that real quick. So New England has the number one scoring defense. Now, that may be a little overshadowed because they have Tom Brady as their quarterback, but they have a very, very good defense compared to Atlanta's number 27-ranked scoring defense. And number and New England is number four in offense with regard to total yards, and Atlanta's number two. So they're very even offensively. Now, defensively, don't get me wrong, Atlanta only has one less takeaway than New England with 22. And they both, both teams have 34 sacks. And Atlanta's defense is young. So, I mean, New England's scoring-wise, yes, they're great. But Atlanta's defense is still good. And getting here in the playoffs, they've played really well. I mean, again, they had to face Aaron Rodgers, and they had to face Russell Wilson. So, I mean, it's not like they've been playing no-name quarterbacks to get here. They've played um, great, great, great quarterbacks to get here. So don't let, their, don't let their, score, their scoring defense rank fool you. They're a good defense. Another interesting stat is Belichick and Brady are 12-0 in the playoffs against teams they did not face in the regular season. And they did not face Atlanta this year. So that's kind of one of those stats where, oh, well, it's, that's just the most random thing ever, but it sounds, it sounds smart and, and professional, so we're going to report it. But it is interesting. Um, and then, we'll compare, so they're 12-0 in playoffs against teams they didn't face in the regular season compared to 12-9 in rematches. So I guess just that, that just proves that in order to beat Brady, you at least got to play him. You're not going to beat Brady on the first time. So another interesting stat is 
Well, no, I guess not a stat. I mean, I covered it last week how Matt Ryan has thrown touchdowns to 13 different receivers. In order for Atlanta to win, like, they're going to have to keep up with the Patriots scoring. Brady's going to score. And Atlanta just has to keep... It's, I think Atlanta needs to shoot out to win. I mean, they have... This is the highest points per game team New England's faced in the Super Bowl. And then I think Atlanta's like the eighth all-time in points per game. So that's their formula to win, put up points, running up the scoreboard. And it holds so true in the Super Bowl game. They may, they got to force a turnover. they got to have a big play, but they got to keep putting points on the board. And a, a good thing is, even if New England decides to try to take away Julio Jones... Matt Ryan's ball distribution is unbelievable. So, yes, New England's very good defense, but Matt Ryan has other weapons all over the field besides Julio Jones if they choose to take out Julio Jones. Like, Mohamed Sanu is pretty much the same body type as Julio Jones. And then another receiver, Mohamed Sanu. And then Atlanta's two running backs are very, very good. And Tevin Coleman, one of the running backs, I think has the highest... Uh, I forget the stat, but I know he's very good out of the backfield receive, uh, catching the ball. But an interesting stat regarding uh, Julio Jones is Atlanta's 7-1, and one, including the playoffs, when Jones has less than 100 yards receiving. And they're 4-4 four and four when he reaches the 100-yard mark. So New England can take out Julio Jones. They can put Malcolm Butler on him and take him out, or they could bracket him or double him or whatever. Matt Ryan's going to have other... He's going to go somewhere else. Taking out Julio Jones isn't going to necessarily affect him. As long as they keep putting points on the board, that is Atlanta's formula to win. So, possibly a good chance for a shootout, which is always exciting. When the score's high, people are into the game. People love points. People love touchdowns. So, this game could be very, very good. Honestly, the safe bet on the game is Brady, who, which is crazy could win his fifth Super Bowl and surpass the record of four, which Bradshaw and Montana have. They both have four rings. And Brady could finally solidify himself as the best quarterback of all time. Many people already regard him as the best quarterback of all time, but five rings is just unbelievable. So the safe bet is Brady until someone knocks him off his throne. But I'm really excited for this game. A lot of interesting stats, thanks to USA Today for that chart. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited for that game. Another, I I want to bring this back, this the Super Bowl back to a a spiritual uh, aspect perspective. So think of this question: Does God care who wins? Really think about it for a few seconds. Does God care who wins the Super Bowl? I think he does. I think I read a great article by Ed Uzinski. Uh, he was talking about how if if God cares who wins, a lot of people forget how far God's sovereignty extends. God's sovereignty doesn't doesn't extend up until creation, up until uh, who leads a nation, up until all borders and countries and leadership. God's sovereignty extends to the entire universe, and God cares and loves the entire universe. 
So God does care about the outcome of a game. God cares who wins. Now, it's weird to think that because he already knows who wins. God already knows who's going to win the Super Bowl. God already knows who's going to win every single game that's going to happen for the, for the rest of the existence of the world, the existence of sports. But that doesn't mean, yes, that's hard to comprehend that he already knows the winner, but yet, oh, he cares who wins. But he does care who wins. God cares because it's an opportunity for his creation to have pleasure. I talked about that in the, when I was talking about salvation. This Super Bowl, his creation could compete and have fun. Sports results in pleasure. Now, many people abuse it, of course, but at its core, sports is pleasure. People enjoy watching it. People enjoy playing it. It also, the, the outcome of the game also will eventually lead to the glory of God. No matter if you're a winner or a loser, maybe the winner interviewed after a game. Oh, I would like to first thank God for this win. Anything like that leads to the glory of God. The loser leads to the, may lead the loser of this game. That will lead to the glory of God as well. God has an interesting way, as uh, Ed Yuzinski was saying, of losers of these games experiencing true satisfaction and joy in God outside of this game after losing something like this, which results in the glory of God. So, I mean, regardless of the outcome, it's going to result in God being glorified, which He loves, and God wants us to have pleasure. So, yes, God cares who wins. So that's just something to think about, I guess, in watching big games like this. Hmm, does God care who wins this game? The answer is yes, but kind of ponder and meditate over how, why God would care about certain games. So that's just something I wanted to bring up, kind of relate sports and Jesus. Well, this is the Jesus Love Sports Podcast, so that would make sense. All right, now on to a little college basketball. Now, I'm going to start off talking about the Big 12. The Big 12 has impressed me. Now, I know besides Kansas, there's no perennial powerhouses like Duke or Kentucky, but the Big 12 shows promise. Sports Illustrated had the Big 12 as the second toughest conference in the 2015-2016 season. And they had, like, of course, West Virginia, Baylor, Kansas, they usually finish at the top of the conference, and they're the three teams you always look for in the Big 12. But, I mean, there's, throughout the Big 12, competition is very, very good. Baylor head coach Scott Drew said last year how competitive the Big 12 is. Even after knowing they're going to lose Buddy Hill, Georgia Sniang, and Perry Ellis, like the Big 12 is still going to be very, very competitive, regardless if they lose big-time talent or not. So just some interesting stats for this year for basketball. I was looking through NCAA.com about uh, national rankings and stats. Baylor is tied for 7th in scoring defense, and they're ninth in opponent field goal percentage. West Virginia is number one in steals and turnovers forced, and they're number seven in scoring offense. Oklahoma State is number eight in scoring offense, and then Kansas is number 16 in scoring offense. So they're, Baylor is, not, sorry, Baylor, the Big 12 is making a name for itself in important national rankings. I mean, Big 12 is good. The thing is, in the postseason, March Madness hits, the Big 12 slowly whittles away, and all the big names rise up and make a name for themselves, win championships, go to Final Fours. The Big 12 has been very unsuccessful in that regard. 
Now, I know the past few years, the past few years especially, like, for example, Baylor's had some bad losses. Kansas has some bad losses in the NCAA tournament. Uh, interesting stat. So, for the Final Four in the Big 12, KU's last Final Four is 2012. OU's last year, but they, I mean, they got blown out by Villanova. West Virginia, 2010. And then Baylor, 1950. Iowa State, 1944. And then only Kansas and Oklahoma State had won NCAA tournaments. Kansas back in 2008 and OSU back in 1946. So Big 12 is lacking some of those historical teams that other conferences like the ACC have. And I was reading a really good article by Jonathan Charks kind of talking about the dilemmas the Big 12 has and regarding how they're able to they're not able to do well in the NCAA tournament. He was saying that there's a there's a huge lack of high-quality big men that can dominate both sides of the ball. And as soon as I read that, oh, I agreed wholeheartedly. That's why Kansas hasn't been able to do anything in the past few seasons. Ever since Joel Embiid went to the NBA draft, Kansas, there's not been a two-way big man that just dominates the floor. The Big 12 is guard-heavy. Now, it makes for a great Big 12 regular season and competitive nature because all the teams have similar formulas to win, guard-heavy. Like West Virginia's, they've made a name for self with their full-court press. They make they put a short lineup in, and they, they put a small lineup in, they press... That's why they're leading the country in steals and turnovers forced. But that's so true why the the Big 12, does their play doesn't translate into the NCAA tournament because that's when the, when the game slows down and possessions start getting longer. Having a two-way big man is so important in winning big games and moving on to the next round and winning championships. And the Big 12 just does not have that so that's something I guess the Big 12 has to improve on now don't get me wrong the Big 12 is really really good and they're hard to beat it's just that's maybe a reason why they lack historically in championships in the past few seasons some of the perennial powerhouses like Duke and Kentucky continue to bring in unbelievable two-way big men and they continue to advance far in the NCAA tournament so that's just what I want to talk about Big 12. It's, I mean, they've really impressed me. Don't get me wrong. It's, they're really fun to watch. Their games are so competitive and scrappy. But I just they're hard to trust in the NCAA tournament. All right, so a little more broad college basketball talk. Man, there's just this whole season of college basketball is defined by unbelievable guard play. NCAA is guard-heavy. Regard to with regards to the NBA draft talent and who's I guess talked about most. I mean, yes, there's good big men, but they're guard heavy with regard to who's in the headlines. So Dennis Smith Jr. Uh, still very very impressive from NC State as a freshman. He has recorded his second triple double of the year. Only Andre Iguodala, when he was at Arizona from 02 to 04, is the only player to reach three triple doubles in a season. Dennis Smith Jr. very well could surpass that mark or even reach that mark. He's at 19 points per game, 6.5 assists per game. 
Kentucky if they're two their great backcourt, Darren Fox and Malik Monk. Uh, Josh Jackson at Kansas is a very, very high draft prospect. Uh, Lonzo Ball from UCLA uh, is averaging 15, 6, and 8. <laughs> interesting, something interesting. His dad said he'll be easier for him in the NBA. His dad was on some video saying, oh, yeah, the game will speed up, and Lonzo's best when the game's fast, and the NBA will be easier for him. I mean, who knows what's going to happen. I just thought that was pretty funny. Now, Lonzo Ball's a very good player. He's a long point. I think he's 6'6". He can pass, he can rebound, he can score. He's got a very interesting shot, his form. But he's a very good player. And the yes, there's like the height of the NBA. And the like positions are, it's, it's so weird changing. Like big men are shooting threes now. Point guards are getting taller. So Lonzo Ball kind of fits in that category of the way positions are kind of changing in the NBA. Uh, and then Luke Kennard from Dukes, 20 points a game. Marco Fultz from Washington, 23 points per game, 6 rebounds, 6 assists. Marco Fultz didn't make his varsity, high, his varsity basketball team until his junior year in high school. So for all you guys out there that are, have given up hope after not being a, a freshman starter in varsity, uh, Marco Fultz didn't make it till his junior year, and he's, he's doing, I would say, more than fine in the, the collegiate basketball category. Um, but, I mean, college basketball is really exciting. People are drawn to watching guard play. A lot of people have, like, people want to be point guards. I was Colin Coward, I was listening to him on uh, on his show, and it was just really funny, like, people who sell shoes and people who are famous, those are the point guards, those are the guards. Like, people don't want to grow up and be a Bill Walton. He said some, he said some uh, old school big men, like, people who sell shoes, LeBron. Uh, Kyrie Irving, Steph Curry, Kobe, guards, people who, now LeBron does everything, but like big men, post, five, guys who play five don't necessarily sell shoes. They're not the people who you kids grow up wanting to, to be. So college basketball has been so awesome to watch this year with how many great guards there are. Uh, so that's enough for college basketball. I want to end with some NBA talk. Two stories I want to hit on. First, the Cavs and their drama, and then the Bulls and their drama. So there's been three well-known players making headlines, complaining to the media, and voicing anger to the media. Two of them are future Hall of Famers, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, and then the other is Jimmy Butler. So we'll do a little Cavs first. So LeBron has been voicing his anger to the media and complaining to the media about how the Cavs are top-heavy, how he's not getting what he wants, stuff like that. No, I've always felt like LeBron's complained. LeBron definitely makes up for anything he does in the media with his play. But it just, it, I'm sick and tired of him complaining about things that, uh, like he's complaining about their top, yes, they're top heavy of course because they have three all-stars. Any team would be, would die to have that type of team. Now I know he's saying it because He's worried they're not going to be able to beat the Warriors in the finals because the Warriors got Kevin Durant. But still, stop saying all these things and making people mad. How is that going to make your team better by complaining to the media? LeBron's going to the media, dropping F-bombs, cussing, saying all these things that are is tearing... I don't know if it's probably not tearing apart the locker room, but it, it's not strengthening the locker room. 
it's not in, in bettering that relationship with the GM and the owner of, of Cleveland. And then LeBron's, like, act like the intelligent man so many people view as, and just keep quiet. Do things behind closed doors. Talk to your GM and owner behind closed doors. Talk to your players in the locker room. You don't have to go to the media and complain about how you're top-heavy and, oh, if you and Kyrie were hurt, this team would really struggle. So, I mean, yes, the Cavs, they, they need a backup point guard. That's, they, they lost. Del, Del is looking like a way better player now since the need for Cleveland for a backup point guard has been growing and growing all season. And then, I don't know, the, Cleveland is just, they're going to make to the finals regardless of what people think. It's going to be Golden State and Cleveland in the finals. Or maybe San Antonio and Cleveland in the finals. It just makes me mad because LeBron and the Cavs are complaining they're top-heavy and they're top-heavy and they need a backup point guard and they need all these things. How does that explain their horrible defense, though? Everyone's been getting on Cleveland for their horrible defense lately. They, I think uh, the Pelicans put up 70 in the first half against Cleveland without Anthony Davis. Like, your backup point guard position isn't the reason that no one's playing defense on your team. LeBron, you just beat Golden State on Christmas Day. Your team's not tanking. You may be going through a little slump, but now is not the reason to outlash, outlash to the media that things are horrible and you need, all the, you need your owner to buy this player. You need your owner to do this. You need your GM to do this. You're already, your team, your Cavs already have the highest payroll. The owner and GM have done everything that LeBron has wanted, and LeBron's asking for more and asking for more and asking for more. They, Cleveland has everything they need. Yeah, yes, you may argue that they need a backup point guard. But their team is so good, they're just, on the defensive end, they're doing horrible. Now, one thing that Cleveland can change is stop playing LeBron so many minutes. LeBron's leading the league in minutes now, which is crazy for how many seasons he's played in the NBA. So Cleveland, Tyron Lue, you need to get your act together and stop playing LeBron so many minutes. I just feel, I don't know, I just feel like LeBron, they're losing, and he kind of wants to point fingers. It's not me, it's not me. Oh, we're top-heavy. Oh, well, I'm playing too many minutes. I'm doing all this. Just stop pointing fingers. Keep quiet. Your team's going to be fine. You'll get a backup point guard. You'll start playing defense again, and you'll go to the finals. It just, it's pointless to go to the media, and it, all it can do is hurt your team. Which leads me to talk about the Bulls, which are undergoing the same thing. Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade are complaining to the media about the team not wanting it, not playing hard enough, talking about the coach. And then Rondo posted on Instagram about how, oh, when I was in Boston, my vets, which he was referring to uh, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, uh, Kevin Garnett, they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't go to the media. They'd go to us in the locker room. They were in the gym after losses, putting up shots. So he was firing back at Butler and Wade for going to the media and complaining. I just, like I said, I don't understand what going to the media does. The Bulls are already a bunch of random parts put together that aren't fluent. They're, they're not fluent. Like, yes, they're putting people in seats. They're, they, brought, they have three big names that attract people to watch the games. But if you think about it, Rondo, Wade, and Butler, none of them shoot well. 
You need to bring someone that is good from the perimeter. D. Wade's never been a three-point shooter. Rondo sure can't shoot. So I just don't understand. Like going to the media just makes the the problem in Chicago worse. And D. Wade's never been a dramatic player off the court. Besides, in '09, him and Pat Riley had a kind of uh, altercation about the the team, the direction of the team in Miami. But besides that, D. Wade's been quiet. I just, I just can't wrap my mind around how going to the media is going to solve this problem. And the Bulls already have problems with Jimmy Butler and poor leadership a few seasons ago. And then recently, like Jimmy Butler's called out Fred Hoiberg with his coaching style. And people in the locker room are not sure about if Jimmy Butler is able to lead going from a role player to an all-star and wanting everything for himself now. So, I mean, Chicago's, Chicago is kind of in a dramatic position right now. So I just I have to say again, going to the media does not do anything. Why add fuel to the fire? So, and then also, I totally forgot to talk about the LeBron and Barkley thing. So Charles Barkley, good old Sir Charles, went after LeBron and from a basketball perspective. And then Le- talking about his play and complaining and saying they're top in hot pavy and they need more to win a championship. Barkley was saying, talked about, and they started talking about like chasing championships and stuff like that. He was, he was kind of calling out LeBron for complaining. And then LeBron went after Barkley personally. Now, I'm not defending what Barkley did and some of the things, like some things in Vegas during his playing career. But I am going to defend, I'm not going to defend LeBron either for going after Sir Charles, Charles Barkley personally. Like, LeBron, I don't know what's going through his head. LeBron's been a very intelligent player, and then now he's attacking Barkley, who's an NBA analyst, former player personally. Like, you're ta- you're being, like, take the higher road and just take criticism, which you've been taking your whole career. You took criticism after doing horrible against the, against the Mavs in the finals in tw- 2011. You can't take criticism from Charles Barkley? You have to go after him personally? I just... I don't know. It, it's it's frustrating to see that veterans are feeling the need to now go to the media and voice anger and it just the things they're saying do does nothing to help your team. And I just can't wrap my mind around it. All right. Well, that's all I have for uh, this week's podcast. Thank you guys for listening. I'll see you guys in a week. And as always, how did you make a difference today? They just had to follow God's law and they were saved. No, no, no. That is not the case. Going to the media does not do anything. Why add fuel to the fire? People don't want to grow up and be a Bill Walton. Having a two-way big man is so important in winning big games.